I invite you to turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to our sermon scripture, which is Psalm 7. I'll invite Alistair forward now to the microphone. Uh, he'll be reading this uh, psalm for us. Just as a, a review of what we're doing this morning, uh, we are in our summer psalm series. Every summer we like to take a few weeks to look at the psalms. They are a collection of 150 songs in the, in, in the Hebrew scriptures in the Bible through which God himself teaches his people how they're to faithfully commune with him, how we are to relate to God amid all of life's highest highs and lowest lows. We find a great range within these psalms. These songs, they've been used, they've been treasured by God's people for millennia in both public and private worship. And God himself gives us these psalms so that we can know him better. We learn so much about the character of God in the psalms. But we also learn more about ourselves, about our emotions, about how we should relate to God in the various times of life. And as the melody of these songs become our own, we learn to more fully trust God's goodness, to live faithfully before him, again, in all of life's ups and downs. So would you join us as Alistair reads. Hear the word of God from Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the people be gathered about you, over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give thanks to the Lord. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for this song, this prayer. Would it permeate our, our very being? Would it become our own song when we face circumstances similar? Uh, would you use it as a bomb uh, to the soul of the troubled who are here listening today? We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you missed the introduction, my name's Mike. I'm the pastor here. Glad to have you all. Uh, again, we're going through Psalm 7. And one thing you need to know about the Psalms is they can be used uh, as medicine for very specific events in life. 
They can use, be used medicinally. Some psalms, they might not seem like they fit to every life event, and that's, that's a feature, not a bug. Uh, for very particular events, there are often very particular psalms that are desperately needed. Athanasius, he was a fiery bishop in Alexandria in the 4th century, he would prescribe Psalm 7 like this. He said, when certain people plot against you, sing Psalm 7 and place your trust in God who will deliver you. So this is when Psalm 7 is desperately needed. When people are throwing false accusations at you, when they seek to harm you, when they're spreading lies about you, when people do mean and awful things just to harm you, Athanasius says, Here's the prescription. Sing Psalm 7. Place your trust in God. He'll deliver you. Now this medicine, it might not seem like an immediate cure. It might not actually alleviate the situation that's bringing you so much trouble. It's not a magic spell that we're called to chant to remove all troubles in our life. But when God's people, in the face of slander, in the face of hatred and trouble, sing Psalm 7, our souls find relief and they find hope in God. When this medicine begins to do its work in us, we're cured from an insidious form of fear, and our faith is strengthened in God. This psalm, uh, if you look at the title of it, right at the very top, it's uh, titled A Shagayan of David. A Shagayan. King David is perhaps Israel's greatest known king. We know about this when we read the historical books, uh, First and Second Samuel, and he's credited as writing this. But the meaning of that term Shagayan is actually not known to us. It's, it's probably a musical term. Maybe it's even a musical instrument of some sort. It might be a musical direction on how to sing this song, kind of like when we say sing it allegro, you know, quickly, briskly. Uh, sing it uh, according to a Shagayan. Uh, but it's kind of lost to us. The title says the psalm was sung by uh, David to the Lord concerning, if you look at it, the words of Cush. This is something else that we don't know about this psalm. We don't know who the person Cush is. Again, you could read First and Second Samuel with details of David's life. You can meet lots of enemies who are giving David all kinds of trouble, but you won't find this guy Cush in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, you can see in our bulletin, not in your Bibles, but in your bulletin, there's something missing after the comma that's there. That's, that's our fault. We forgot to print it. Uh, but it says, of Cush, a Benjamite. A Benjamite. That's actually what's missing there. So Cush, whoever this gentleman was, was a Benjamite. Benjamite is one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and that's important because it means that he was part of the family of Abraham. He was a fellow Jew, just like David. And so the trouble and the harm that Cush is bringing to David in this particular instance that we read about in Psalm 7, it's coming from within the covenant community. It's not from an outsider, it's from an insider, someone who should be trusted, someone who should not be acting like an enemy, and this makes this hurt so much the worse. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to walk through the psalm, kind of top through bottom, explain what's going on, try to understand it better, so that we too can sing it in circumstances when we need to sing it. This psalm, we're going to divide it into five parts. We'll just take it in each section at a time. So this is section one. If you look at the text, section one is verses one to two. And we could paraphrase what's happening in section one as David saying just simply, help me, God, you're my refuge, help me. In verses 1 through 2, David runs to God. If you can imagine a young child running to her father when she's being chased by the mean neighborhood dog, perhaps she's knocked down the bee's nest, and she's looking for comfort, looking for help. She does what David does here. When he's in trouble, he makes a beeline, no pun intended, for God, right? Goes directly to God. He comes to God in prayer, if you look at verse 1, that's what he says. In you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers. 
That word refuge, we, we mentioned, I think, last week, it could be translated as the word citadel. Haligonians understand what a citadel is. It is a high place of safety. David describes his enemies in verse 2 using just powerful imagery. He describes them as lions ready to tear his soul apart. Lions then, as now, are symbols of power, of ruthlessness, of, of even cruelty. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter warns the church, uh, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So David is using two powerful images right at the beginning of this song. God is a refuge. He is a citadel, a safe place. And second, that his enemies are like roaring lions, relentlessly cruel and powerful, against whom he has no help. And so David is saying this right at the outset, before he, he begins with his petition, petitions. God, help me. Be my refuge. Unless you protect me, I'm done for. If you were alone in the wilderness... And you encountered a, a massive, hungry lion. We, we had somebody who just came back from a safari. Uh, hopefully she didn't have this encounter. But you probably wouldn't have much self-confidence if you faced this lion alone in the wilderness. Even if you were a fairly strong person. You, know, you could bench press over your weight. You know? Maybe you, you came from some wealth. Perhaps you knew karate. You probably wouldn't be very glad to be in this situation. This is kind of hopeless. This is bad. But if you met that same lion and you had no strength, you couldn't, you couldn't lift you know, a quarter of your body weight, no wealth to speak of, no karate, uh, but you were safely behind an impenetrable, electrified fence, you could have lots of confidence facing that lion, not because of who you are, but confidence in your refuge, where you are hiding yourself, in your safe place. David instructs us when we face trials of various kinds, our first instinct shouldn't be to look within ourselves and our own resource or to those around us, but to run to the place of safety, to run to God in prayer immediately, to hide ourselves in him. Friends, this is what we need to, to know God the Father is like to his children. We need to be like children running to him often. Papa, help me. You're my refuge. My enemies are after me. This is what prayer can look like. This is what it ought to look like for God's children. So that's section one. David sees trouble, and his first move is to run to God. In section two, verses three through five, we could paraphrase what David is saying in those verses as, I'm innocent of these charges. I'm innocent of these charges. The trouble that's facing David in this psalm is not open war. It's not sickness. It's not even the consequences for sins that he's committed. There are other psalms where that happens. But verses 3 through 5 shows that David is facing slander and false accusations from Cush, a Benjamite. Look how specific David's being. If you see the three ifs in verses 3 through 4, uh, he's saying, um, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause. He says, well, well then let me have it. I deserve it. If, if what Cush is saying is true, then I deserve everything that's happening to me. David here and elsewhere in the Psalms, we need to be cautious of this. He's not claiming that he's never done anything wrong. He's not claiming perfection for himself or faultlessness. Uh, if you've read the biblical narratives of David, you know that this is absolutely not true. Uh, there is lots of sin that David needs to bring before God. But what he's saying here in Psalm 7 is that I've got a clean conscience uh, about this specific thing that's bring, being brought up against me. I'm innocent of these charges. 
Specifically, verse 4 kind of highlights that. Uh, David's saying, if I've treated my friends with evil, uh, the second half of verse 4 uh, probably means something like uh, David saying, I've even treated my enemies well. Again, if you read the historical accounts, you see how kind David was to people like King Saul. King Saul repeatedly tried to kill David, and when David had an opportunity to, to, to seek revenge or to harm him, he, he didn't do it. He treated his enemies uh, kindly. These false accusations of Cush don't reflect anything that David's known that he's done. And if you reflect on a moment on the power of false accusations, we, we need to see how truly awful and how truly heinous this is. Maybe this is doubly true for Christians. Listen, listen to this. We should be very cautious in spreading information about people that you aren't certain about. We should be so cautious uh, to, to, to spread uh, slander or false information. Uh, this is the way of the world, increasingly so perhaps, but it's not the way of the church. See, it's so easy to share a post or a tweet uh, on, on nebulous information, perhaps even downright falsehood. We need to be very cautious about this because false accusation is horrible on several different counts. If you're innocent of the charges being brought against you, you can't make things better. If you're being falsely accused, you can't apologize. You can't make it right because you didn't do the things that you're being charged with. And you can't reconcile with the person who's leveling these charges against you because you both know that they're lying or trying to harm you or that they just don't care about the truth. This is an incredibly difficult place to be in. When you're slandered, your reputation is harmed, sometimes irrevocably. Even if, you know, months or years later you're proved innocent, the damage has already been done. In the Old Testament judicial system, which, which has strongly influenced Western law, the prospect of false accusation leading to uh, penalties and punishment against an innocent person was thought to be such, a, such an evil, something to be avoided at all costs, such a gross distortion of justice that it would be better to let a guilty person go free than to condemn an innocent one. That was kind of the standard within the scriptures. And so this is a crisis that David's facing that perhaps you have or perhaps one day you will. The gross injustice of false accusation. Now, we should be quick to add that Psalm 7 isn't meant to help somebody who has a guilty conscience, that they've actually done the things that they're being accused of, right? So this psalm is not, oh God, help me get out of the jam that I've actually, you know, gotten myself into. Perhaps there are psalms like that, but this isn't it. Okay, what you need to do if you're being accused of something that you actually have done is to repent. It's to go and make it right before God, before that person. You need to admit it and deal with it. Psalm 7 isn't a song for a guilty conscience. It's a song for the falsely accused and hurting. Psalm 7 is medicine we take when people are plotting against us, when they're seeking our harm. So section 1, verses 1 through 2, David's saying, help me, be my refuge. Section 2, uh, verses 3 through 5, I'm innocent of these specific charges. I'm not perfect, but these are lies intended to harm me. Section 3, verses 6 through 11, you could paraphrase as David saying, God, judge my case. As, as one day you'll judge every case, judge this case. In verse 6, we see David asking God to rise up, to, to wake up, to match the intensity of his accusers, to make a judgment. When God delays in helping, we, we know how impatient we can get. When, when injustice is prolonged, it feels to us that God's asleep. But in faith, David knows that God is the ultimate judge. He alone can judge this case rightly. If you look at verse 8, 
You see that God deals not just with local skirmishes and interpersonal difficulties, but he, he judges cosmically, universally. He judges among all the peoples. Uh, this is, we're going to sing it actually at the end of our worship service, singing about the day of the Lord, the last day when God will finally judge all peoples, where he'll make all things right. If you look at verse 9, David prays for that day to come and for him to get a taste of it even now. He says, Oh, let the wicked, the evil of the wicked, come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. See, David believes something about God. He's confident about something about the character of God, that God, God sees everything, he knows everything, he isn't biased and unfair like many judges. He knows exactly what's in our hearts and what's in our minds. He's the only person fit to judge the world. And so he calls on that God, the righteous one, to judge his case. Listen, this is one of the reasons why the scripture repeatedly tells followers of God that, that we must turn the other cheek when we're hurt, that we must not seek revenge when we're harmed. How could we possibly do this? We can do this only when we have faith, when we have confidence that in the end, God will judge rightly. You might fear that a harm that has been done to you in the past one that you think, no one cares about this. No one sees it. No one will ever do anything to right this wrong. Listen, God sees. God knows. God cares. Uh, the, the verse in, in verse 7, which might have surprised you, he is a righteous God, a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. This just means that God's justice doesn't cool. He, he will not forget harms that have been done. He's the only fit person to judge the world rightly, and we can entrust him with that. God is a righteous judge. And so section one, help me. Help me, God. Section two, uh, I'm innocent. Section three, God, judge this case. Judge it fairly. And now section four. These are verses 12 through 16. We could paraphrase it as uh, God God, put away the wicked. Put an end to wickedness. God judging the wicked is actually a steady storyline from the beginning of the scriptures to the very end. It runs throughout the Bible because God is holy, because he's just. He won't tolerate evil forever. But Psalm 7 also acknowledges, briefly, quietly, kind of subtly, we'll see it in a minute, that God's, tri uh, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. We sang that very, very gladly in Psalm 87, that this is the way God, God is. He, he loves to welcome sinners back to himself. And if you look at verse 12, we see that door being cracked a little bit, the door of repentance, giving a chance for even the most wicked, the most heinous of sinners, to amend their actions. God's judgment will fall. He will put away the wicked, if a man does not repent, judgment only belongs to those who are obstinate, who refuse to put away their sin as God instructs them to. God's judgment won't fall on the wicked, in other words, if they repent, if they turn from evil, if they turn to God. See, God isn't a God who is gleeful in jumping to judgment. He doesn't have a hair-trigger temper ready to go off the slightest provocation. I can't wait to smite that guy. He's not eager to bring his justice immediately. He opens the door to forgiveness for the worst of offenders. And that's something praiseworthy. That's something we need to rejoice that this is our God. Remember, the wicked here in Psalm 7 are those who slander and bring false charges against someone who's innocent. Something that is 
absolutely abhorrent in God's eyes. So these, like Cush isn't somebody who's late on his overdue library books or he's jaywalking. Uh, he is somebody who's doing something despicable and deeply harmful to somebody else and even to such people. This is the extent of God's mercy. Even to such people, his judgment is provisional. If a man does not repent, only then will my judgment fall. And this is good news, not, of course, just to Cush, but also to us. We who have done the wrong that we know we ought not to have done, we who have done, not done the things that we know we should have done, deeply harmful and, and, and hurtful to other people. Maybe you have slandered others recently. You've spread things about others that you know not to be true simply to hurt them, just to cause trouble. It's, it's not just other people, the wicked people out there who God offers repentance and forgiveness. It's to us here too. Hear this, forgiveness is offered to the worst of sinners, and that includes us. But this is the caution of Psalm 7. This is the louder note here. We must repent. We must repent, or judgment is sure to fall. God himself is ready to put away the wicked. He will do it on the day of the Lord. If you look at verses 12 through 13, there's this picture of God as, as a warrior getting armed up. Yeah, he, he has put his string on his bow. He has sharpened his sword. His arrows are ready. This is not an image that you want to face one day. This is not the kind of person you want to face still clinging to your sins. It would be foolish. God's not a foe that you want to contend with. Uh, he's, he's more frightening in these images than the lion faced in the uh, wilderness. It would be foolish to continue in your sin and to continue to make God your enemy. Uh, verses 5 through 16 continue to describe just how foolish this is, right? The foolishness of sin in itself. All the harm that Cush is plotting against David will ultimately return on his own head, right? He's digging a pit for David. He'll end up falling in it himself. He tries to pull mischief down on David's head. It's going to end up on his own crown. Didymus the Blind, he was another theologian from the 4th century. This is what he wrote. He said, truly, he sins first against himself, then he injures another. Since, harm, since sin is harmful and ruinous, foremost it harms and roughly handles the one sinning. Sin is like deadly radiation. To handle it is to bring death on itself. Again, friends, we've said this before, don't mess with sin any more than you would mess with a poisonous snake. It'll destroy you. As the saying goes, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. This is inevitable. This is the way that God works the universe. David has run to God because of how bad things are for him. He's gone to his place of safety, but looking at his situation now, he recognizes that no matter how bad things are for him right now, they're going to be infinitely worse for Cush if he doesn't repent. God will put away the wicked if they refuse to repent. And this leads David to our final section, just the short one. Section 5, just verse 17. And we can paraphrase verse 17 simply as, Praise the Lord. What a strange place to kind of end up in. He shouted, Help! I'm dying! I'm innocent! Judge my case! Deal with the wicked! But he finishes his song with praise. See, David, in the course of time, as he's reflected on who God is and how God sees David's situation, he's moved from fear to faith, from complaint to confidence, from terror to trust. 
This medicine's done its work in David's life. David's been changed. His circumstances are the same, but his heart's been renewed. Just look at verse 17. Someone who's terrified, someone whose reputation is ruined, can sing this. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. How do you get there? David praises God's righteousness. This is the faith that David has, that God's character is such that he will always do exactly what's right in his time. David's confident of this. He he praises God for it. In the end, God will judge perfectly and completely. Evil will be dealt with. And therefore, David, in the middle of his troubles, can sing praise. He can give thanks to God. So that's the medicine of Psalm 7. This is what we should take when people seek our harm. This is the medicine we should offer to our friends and family when they face troubles like this as well. Now one application of this psalm is hopefully for all of us a change to the way that we see the biggest challenges in our life. Singing this psalm for all of us ought to change the way that we look at all the difficulties that we're facing in life. Some of the deepest hurts that you've ever experienced some of the most brutal betrayals. This is easy for me to say. It's, it's, it's harder to practice, of course. See we, see, we see in David how his trouble, his very painful and personal trouble, has actually led him to trust God more. He's, he's had to grow closer to God. He's had to move towards God for safety, for protection. And in this song, we see him maturing in his faith. If you are someone who has ever prayed, God, I would like to trust you more. I would like my faith in you to be strengthened. I'd like to grow closer to you. Trouble might be on the way. Troubles may be the chief way that, that this prayer is answered. Trouble is one of the chief tools that God uses to draw us closer to him, to mature our faith. The enemy around us, there's nothing quite like it that causes us to flee to our citadel, to feel our weakness, to run to Christ. As the Apostle James writes, uh, we read it a couple of weeks ago in our first scripture reading, he says, oddly, count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, what what are we tempted to do when we face troubles of various kinds? Probably not count it all joy. We want to grumble. We want to complain and moan. And when we encounter pain and things that seem too hard to bear, James gives us this, this counsel, count it all joy. Psalm 7 ends up telling us to give thanks to the Lord to praise his name, not because of the trouble itself, but because of the God who will be our refuge in the midst of it. This is how we draw closer to God. Let's end with this. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he he might have sung Psalm 7 medicinally. Psalm 7 is a psalm of Jesus. Jesus himself experienced false accusations uh, from a close friend, from Judas. Experienced a plot against him when he was innocent of all charges. He felt the slander of the chief religious leaders. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, which we read uh, during our uh, words of assurance, you can look at it in your scriptures or you can uh, look at it in the worship guide. It shows how Jesus, who was fully God and yet fully human, dealt with the difficulty of facing such deep hurt. This is how Jesus dealt with it. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
This is what he did. He did what the psalmist did. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And and in the gospel, because Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, we we who deserve God's justice for the wrongs that we've done, we can die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Listen, the reason why you don't need to fear the howl of your enemies Why you don't need to be haunted by the sins that you know justly deserve God's condemnation. The reason why you can have confidence is because Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly as he bore our sins in his body on that tree. That is our confidence and that is our hope and that is why together, even in the middle of trouble, we can sing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us in giving us songs like this, songs which comfort and remind us that you are with us and you are for us. Uh, Father, for those who are still making of themselves enemies of you, who haven't yet laid down their sin and turned holy to you, I pray that they would do that even now, uh, that instead of knowing you as an enemy, as someone opposed to them in their sin, as a father, someone that they can run to and find comfort and refuge. Father, would you give us this grace now by your Holy Spirit? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.